0: Okay, so we are back at it. This is uh, lesson number four for us in our study, uh, the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And um, again, this is a section of scripture known as primeval history. Um, Genesis is broken into two sections, primeval history, one through 11, and then chapters 12 through 50 is called patriarchal history. And we're just focusing on the first 11 chapters. We've entitled the overall study where it all begins. And really this study is uh, just about the context for pretty much everything. I mean, if you think about primeval history or you think about the first verse of Genesis, it just it starts in the beginning. So uh, the Genesis is, is considered or called the book of origins. And so we're dealing a lot with firsts. And so when we look at the first few verses of Genesis chapters one and two, we're going to look at today, um, we're really talking about the beginning of the beginning. Over the last few weeks, we've spent quite a bit of time trying to um, build the right frame of reference, the right context, the right way of thinking as we approach this study. Uh, we, we talked about what I've called our human context, uh, namely that we're innately self-centered. Um, as we come to a study of Genesis or a study of origins, we need to recognize that we, are, we tend toward self-centeredness. And so there's a, a level of difficulty for us to think about things that might not really affect us right now, we might think. Um, or that might benefit us right now. So we have that self-centeredness tendency that makes us uh, gives us kind of an aversion to things historical. We're also uh, children of Adam. We are post Genesis three fallen creatures. We we come to a study of origins, um, or really we come to a study of anything as as children of Adam, as post Genesis three, as fallen. So. So our minds are not pristine and pure. Um, our ability to grasp concepts and, and grasp realities of the, the, the universe, both known and unknown or limited. So we have to come to this kind of study with the recognition that we do not come purely objective uh, and we do not come with the innate ability to grasp all things related to how God created the universe or how the universe actually works, or what happened in the details and particulars of the universe, or what will happen in the future. We, we just it, There's a limitation there. We also talked about how this really um, finds its manifestation in what we call presuppositions, um, these, these predetermined, settled ways of thinking that we bring to a study. We all, we all bring those kinds of things to a study like this. We also talked about how uh, the unbelieving community, and in particular, the scientific community or the the scientific community that would embrace a naturalistic, uniformitarian kind of view of, of science. Um, they bring presuppositions. And so even though um, there's oftentimes this clash of worldviews or this debate that might take place in, in the public square or amongst people that you know who might um, want to adhere to or Pro, um, propose a an evolutionary kind of view of origins, and claim that it's scientific, it's settled science. They're bringing all kinds of pre- predetermined ways of thinking to those conclusions that they've drawn, that are the same as you and me. In that they're coming from a place of post Genesis three, fallen, limited, self centered, self congratulatory, self affirming kinds of presuppositions Um, and so we come hopefully with that recognition and we started with our first presupposition which says that there is a God and we're not him and in fact when you look at Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 it starts off by saying to us in the beginning God so if you come to a study of Genesis and your presupposition is Anything that I'm going to believe and embrace, I must be able to ascertain on my own through my own means of scientific exploration, my own uh, experimentation, and that my reason and my ability to rationalize and and understand concepts is really the final arbiter of what's true, then we're done in the first few words of Genesis. Because the first few words of Genesis bring us face-to-face, not with something that's natural, not with some naturalistic process. And it brings us face-to-face not with something that is oriented toward a uniform approach to things, like the way things happen now or the way things they've always happened and the way things that they will always happen in the future. So I can calculate my, my light-year calculations of the age of the universe or how far things are from something. I, I can do all that and think that the way it was is the way that it is is the way it always will be. It is not that way. When you come to Genesis chapter 1, in fact, we get slammed right in the face with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So you cannot come to Genesis chapter 1 in particular, a study like this, and expect to find some type of accommodation to your and mine or anyone else's presuppositions that might say, prove it to me. I, I deserve to be uh, convinced of the, of the veracity of this. And, and everything that I read here in Genesis chapter 1 has to line up with what I have determined to be true from all the scientific exploration, all the scientific research, all the scientific discovery that's taken place since recorded history and time. That's not, that's not what Genesis is. Genesis begins with a revelation of the eternal God. All-powerful, sovereign, creator God. That's how it begins. And so we have to recognize what we're dealing with when we think about this clash of worldviews that we find ourselves in, in large measure in our day and time, and in our culture. And I've read several articles that kind of illustrate that. Um, Henry Morris uh, wrote a book. He's written a lot of books on this subject. But his book, in his book, Scientific Creationism, says this, it is impossible... To prove scientifically any particular concept of origins to be true, this is obvious from the fact that the essence of the scientific method is experimental observation and repeatability. A scientific investigator, be he ever so resourceful and brilliant, can neither observe nor repeat origins. Can't be done. This means that though it is important to have a philosophy of origins, it can only be achieved by faith and not by sight. And so what you have to understand is that those who come to their understanding or belief about where all, where it all began, they are bringing strong elements of faith. They are not bringing comprehensive conclusions drawn from pure scientific methodology. They're not. It's impossible. Dr. Elizabeth Mitchell, in her article called Questioning Theistic Evolution, says this, The events that occurred in the beginning are over. They cannot be replicated and tested and observed. Experimental science reveals information about the present and makes predictions about the present. Conclusions about the distant past, however, are guided by presuppositions and biases. Without the option of experimental testing of unrepeatable, unobservable events long past, the conclusions of origins science demand certain starting assumptions. If our starting assumption accepts the validity of the only eyewitness account available, the one in the Bible, then that eyewitness account will guide our scientific interpretations. Are you tracking with that? If you start with the presupposition that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, That's your presupposition. That's going to guide everything you do from that point forward in your scientific exploration, the way you interpret things. So you're believing the only known eyewitness account of creation, right? Such an approach has produced an understanding that God created all kinds of living things to reproduce after their kinds, only varying within their kinds, that humans and animals have certain design similarities, but that humans are also distinct from animals in many ways, and that geological phenomena can be explained by models based on the events recorded in Genesis, including the global flood. On the other hand, rejection of God's eyewitness account substitutes the authority of fallible human opinions for God's infallible word and, in essence, calls God a liar. That attitude is not so unexpected in non-Christians but it is particularly sad, a particularly sad way for Christ's blood-bought people to behave. So we need to understand that when we look at the the study of origins and the study of Genesis in chapters one, chapters two, um, we need to understand that we're not just talking about differences in interpretations of the known universe of the physical of the physical world that we we see around us. We're talking about core philosophical assumptions and convictions and to the extent that you don't align yourself as a, as a believer with the truth and infallibility and accuracy of God's word you need to be mindful that you are co-opting from a secular worldview completely secular worldview you're you're you're, you're accommodating to that and your view of origins and that's what happens all the time. In this article, it's a, basically an assessment of theistic evolution, which theistic evolution, as many of you I'm sure know, is quite simply the idea that the evolutionary process is how science says it is. It's just that God started the evolutionary process and kind of superintended it, but was really not directly involved in active creation, as it's described in Genesis chapter 1. And that is an accommodation of the professing Christian, to a naturalistic worldview. It's not not an accurate interpretation of the text. And that kind of perspective undermines the interpretation of many parts of the scriptures, including a fundamental understanding of the way that the gospel is presented in the New Testament. There are references to the first Adam and the second Adam, for example, in Romans chapter 5. What do you do with that if you're going to undermine the Genesis 1 account to accommodate secular naturalism? 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 3 to 5 says this, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. This is not an issue that centers around the age of the earth, or it's not something that centers around The fossil record. We wrestle not, or we walk, though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to obey Christ. Colossians 2.8 says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And then the Apostle Paul trying to instruct Timothy toward the end of, of 1 Timothy. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy and dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. And toward the end of that chapter, he says, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. We need to understand that what we're dealing with is ideologies and opinions that have been put forward that stand against the knowledge of God. Where was that? That was Second Timothy chapter six, verses three through five, and then I skipped down that last part, verses twenty and twenty-one. Oh, First Timothy. Did I say Second Timothy? Sorry, First Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 to 5, and then dropping down verses 20 to 21. So the nature of the battle here, the nature of the confrontation for us, is it's a, it's a, it's a battle of worldviews. and It's a battle of ideology. It's not a battle of scientific precision or accuracy. Okay? That's what we need. That's the point we want to make here. So last week we got to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and we looked at that simple little statement, In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. And we made some initial observations from that passage. Those words, as they're strung together in this massively compelling sentence, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What are some of the observations that we made about that one verse? Do you guys remember some of the things we said? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What do we see there? Basic observations. So, time began. So, God's the creator of time, basically, is what you could say from that. What else? God was already there. Eternal God, right? We talked about the eternity of God, which, to talk about the eternity of God, again, our feeble minds, you just can't get your head around what it means to be truly eternal, we talked about we, we read from Stephen Charnock, a Puritan scholar and pastor, who basically said that our understanding of eternal, we have to frame it in negative terms. It means without beginning and without end. We can't even we can't even categorize it in in anything meaningfully positive of a terminology because we just we, we are we are not eternal, um, clearly. We looked at uh, the Psalm of Moses in Psalm chapter 90 that says that, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. If you recall from Moses calling in Exodus chapter three, uh, just by memory, those of you that remember the calling of Moses when he was met by God on the mountain, with the burning bush, God spoke out of the burning bush, classic, you know, vacation Bible school or Sunday school story um, that, that, you know, we hear for year, you know, hear over and over again. So what, what, what happened in that encounter? There was, a, there was a, a calling there that takes place, and Moses has a question for God. Do you remember what the question was? Who should I say sent me? Remember that? Okay, so you want me to go to Pharaoh, right? And you want me to tell Pharaoh, basically the ruler of the known world, let all these people that you've enslaved go. Okay. So, a little clarification. Whom shall I say sent me? And how does God answer? I am. I am who I am. You tell them, I am sent you. That's who we're talking about. It's just God is present tense always. We run out of words, we run out of terminology to describe this eternal God. But it is very important that we we come face to face with the God who made everything. He is eternal. He is transcendent. He is above time and space. So when you start trying to ascertain things about origins and where things came from in the created order of things, and you completely rule out the transcendent, eternal, supernatural creator God from the equation, you're going to fall way, 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 way short in those conclusions. So to recognize that we're talking about the God who is not part of time, but who created time, who was before time, who was beyond time, who was above time. I don't even know how to say it in such a way that we can really make sense of it, but he is eternal God. Stephen Charnock, that Puritan that we read from last time, he gave us three sort of uh, ideas from this. God is without beginning. He is without end. And there is no succession in him. In other words, there's no change or variation in him. He is always who he is. Now, think about that for a second. We can't even come close to... We've changed five different times. I changed clothes today. I mean, we're always changing. God is always 100% everything that he always is all the time because he's eternal. His very essence is to be eternally and always powerful. Eternally and always and unstoppably creator. Eternally and always forever gracious kind wise sovereign i mean just on and on and on it goes this this characteristic of eternality it applies to everything that he is and 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 everywhere that he is and everything that he knows it's it's comprehensive it's a comprehensive character of god we're confronted with this god in chapter 1 now if you think about this for a second Think about the person who comes to Genesis from a purely naturalistic standpoint. That's, they have to relegate that to fairy tale or something. They can't, they can't deal honestly with that. You're being confronted with a being who is eternal and all-powerful. Therefore, the, the, anyone with any rational intelligence would have to assume that eternal being, if that is true... If this is a true revelation of this kind of being, then they have control. That What they say goes. They have authority and power, not over just the cosmos, but over me. And so what happens is, as it says in Romans, we suppress that truth and unrighteousness. And we exchange the immortal God for images of beasts and creeping things. And that's what happens in this whole debate because you come face to face in our finite, limited form with the eternal creator God. We also identified the sovereignty of God here. Now, that doesn't say that God, who is sovereign, created the heavens and the earth. But it's definitely an implication because you don't have God showing up on the scene and trying to justify what he's doing. You know, in other words, the, the, the nature of this text is, is God-centered and it presumes that God is eternal and powerful and sovereign and he is going to do whatever he pleases. The name that's used there is the, is the name of God Elohim, which is a name of God that stresses his majesty and his omnipotence, his overarching power and authority. That's the creator God. We also noticed from chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, the comprehensive extent of God's creative work. It says that God created what? And? Okay. That's a statement of everything. That's just a comprehensive statement that there's nothing that's made, that's been created, that God didn't create. And it's not this 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 uh, statement. The heavens and the earth. The Hebrews did not have a word for like universe. So this would be a a phrase that would would encompass the heavens, all the, all of space, and the earth, all of matter. Basically, is is what you can think of this. In other words, this is not a technical term for heaven, or or you know some you know. Uh, spectrum of outer space or anything like that. It's just all everything above and everything below, everything. It's just a comprehensive statement of the universe. The heavens and the earth. There's nothing that was made that he didn't make. And we quoted from John chapter one, verses one to three that says, In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Okay, so you have any questions? Did God create that? Yes. So, comprehensive. And then we we closed off in our observations with acknowledging this inspired genius of this economy of words that we have here. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we looked at um, this article on the five manifestations of natural phenomenon where Herbert Spencer, who was um, an an avowed... um, naturalist, um, an agnostic, atheist or agnostic, one of the two, not a believer for sure. And back in uh, um, 1882, he basically wrote that all all things are comprised in space, time, matter, motion, and force. And we looked at how amazing in Genesis chapter 1, you have all of that comprised in that one verse. In the beginning time, God force created, created action, the heavens, space, and earth matter. All encompassed in that one verse. Such an amazing and brilliant economy of words. Henry Morris says this about the book of Genesis in general, and Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 in particular. He says, The book of Genesis stands alone in the accounting for the actual creation of the basic space-mass-time continuum which constitutes our physical universe. Genesis 1-1 is unique in all literature, science, and philosophy. Every other system of cosmogony, whether in ancient religious myths or modern scientific models, starts with eternal matter or energy in some form, from which other entities were supposedly gradually derived by some process. Only the book of Genesis even attempts to account... For the ultimate origin of matter, space, and time. And it does so uniquely in terms of special creation. And furthermore, now listen to this, how this economy of words, listen to what it does. This one verse refutes all of man's false philosophies concerning the origin and meaning of the world. It refutes atheism because the universe was created by God. It refutes pantheism for God is transcendent to that which he created. Pantheism means that God's in all things, right? It refutes pantheism, for God is transcendent to that which he created. It refutes polytheism, many gods, for one God created all things. It refutes materialism, for matter had a beginning. It refutes dualism, two equal and opposing forces of good and evil in the world, because God was alone when he created. It refutes humanism, Because God, not man, is the ultimate reality. It refutes evolutionism because God created, created all things. In this one verse, you have that captured. You also have the term created, which is a special term. Um, It's only attributable to God. This term, it's bara, I think is how you pronounce it. And it's it's only attributed to God in the in the scriptures. Only God is creator. There are other terms that are used for man making things or forming things, but this word is used here especially for God alone. Only God creates, forms, and brings to, brings to pass what was not. God is creator. Now, let's put verses 1 and 2 together for a moment. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, let's look at verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, there's something in there in verses 1 and 2. And I want to know if you caught it. Did you see it? Let me read it again. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Did you see it? Trick question. The, you don't see the gap. Have you guys sort of gap theory? So gap theory. We need to talk about that for just a second. Does anybody know what gap theory? The gap theory is. anybody ever heard of that? Can kind of give us a rudimentary de- definition. It's pretty pretty basic. Uh, let me see if what I say matches what. No, I was saying is that what you're referring to. I'm saying there's there's a there's a there's a, the gap theory states that there's a gap between Genesis chapter one verse one and Genesis chapter one verse two. There's a gap in time. Now, my point, the reason why I ask you that question in such a kind of a goofy way, is that you're not going to see a gap there. I mean, you're not going to. In other words, th- this is the this is the whole problem with. Um, with people of what I would consider to be probably good intention and a desire to, you know, support and affirm the authority of scripture, but they've they're adopting secular scientific and naturalistic presuppositions and they're trying to m- bring those into the text of scripture and make the text of scripture fit those secular naturalistic presuppositions. So the gap theory is one of those and that came about you know, a couple hundred years ago. And when all, when all, remember a couple hundred years ago, um, prior to, prior to the last 200 years, it was widely accepted and understood that God was creator. The Genesis chapter one account meant what it said. There's no shenanigans trying to be played on the text and trying to make a day equal something more than a day and all these kinds of things. That's something that's developed in the last 200 years. Well, this same uh, idea of a gap theory emerged as a result of um, a lot of what was being um, postulated in the in, in geological studies during the the 1800s, and and so the age of the Earth. There was there was um, assumptions being made as a result of geological study of of the Earth's strata and discovery of fossils and that kind of thing that were. Uh, causing people to draw conclusions that the earth has to be multi- multiple thousands of years old, if not millions of years old, if not billions of years old. I mean, it was, the age of the earth began to get older and older and older and older. And again, as I said last week, when you really read this, this, all, all of this information about what was being done, what kinds of, um, what kinds of data was informing these conclusions, you find no small amount of speculation going on amongst these scientists. Highly, highly speculative conclusions that are then postulated as scientific fact. And because it's under that rubric or that umbrella of scientific fact, it basically intimidates people to go, whoa, well, we got to figure out how to make Genesis fit into an old Earth reality because that's what the scientists are telling us now. That's kind of, in a very simplistic way, that's kind of what happened historically and what continues to happen. But the gap theory says that there's, if you, and if you read the text in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay. So boom, God created the heavens and the earth. So there's a creation that happens. And then there's this gap of time, long period of time. Why? Because we need to have we need to have that long period of time because the scientific community is telling us that there's no way that the earth is as young as what the Genesis record would tell us that it is. So, okay, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So we're going to insert time in between verse one and verse two. Lots of time. As much time as we need to insert. And during that gap, uh, for example, that's when um, Lucifer, so there was a creation for Lucifer, you know, the angel Lucifer that fell from heaven and took a third of the angels of heaven with him, as it talks about in Ezekiel. Uh, it, it, that, that's when that happened. Okay, that, it's, in, it's in between that time. So there was a creation that really was ruled by Lucifer. And he became prideful during, that, during the gap. I mean, I know you can't see it here, but this is, it's all there in between verses 1 and 2. And that's when that fall, uh, that's when that fall happened. Um, there's also um, theories about a, a Luciferian flood that took place, because what is obvious in the geologic record is that there's there's a, a massive hydraulic effect in the in the in the strata of the Earth's crust. So, in other words, lots of water affected the Earth. Okay, that's that's assumed. So there was this Luciferian flood that took place. The theory goes. Um, and, and, and so part of God's judgment and the, and the, and the rationale for this is that, is that when you look at verse two, it says the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. Those terms paint a picture of emptiness and waste, darkness. These are, these are, and in fact, you, you go to other places in the old Testament. Uh, I, I don't have them written down here, but there's some in Jeremiah and other places where the same Hebrew words are used to describe what happens or what's left after God's judgment passes over, uh, you know, for example, Jerusalem, okay? So it, it's it's left void and waste is the same terminology that's used there. So they bring in, in what is not a, a, a bad practice to use scripture to interpret scripture, but they say this is the reason why it was, Void and and formless and void, without form and void, and and there was darkness was because there was this judgment that took place. And so what you have starting in verse 2 after all this time is a a new sort of recreation. So you have two different, basically two different creation accounts going on between verses 1 and verse 2 with lots and lots of time in between to give you the age, you know, the time that we need, whatever time we need, to satisfy the demands of the scientific community. That's kind of the gist of the gap theory. Okay. So, here's the problem with that. There's all kinds of textual problems, by the way. Um, it's not that's not a good textual um, interpretation of the actual Hebrew language here to to imply that. But what you see happening. And also, it's not a natural reading of the text for anyone. I mean, you would have to, like I said a couple times ago, in order to arrive at anything other than sovereign, eternal creator God creating the world, his world, in six literal days and resting on the seventh, in order to come up with anything other than that, you have to really, really work hard to make it so. It is not, it does not naturally flow out of the original language. It does not flow out of the original syntax or grammar. It, it, it doesn't make any sense from the perspective of the original readers. I mean, can you imagine the, uh, the original people uh, that Moses was writing to, the people of Israel, you know, sometime after the Exodus, reading into this some, something, gap theory or, I mean, any of this stuff or theistic evolution, there's no way that that would be the natural reading of it. So it doesn't fit anything that flows naturally out of the text. But to that point, and we're going to obviously get to this um, when we move forward in the text, but when you look at the flow of Genesis chapter 1 and on as it goes into the actual creation days, uh, starting with the creation of light coming, ne- coming up next, what you see happening, and, th- and this is a the, the theme This is a a, a comprehensive biblical and theological theme. What you see being revealed is a God who brings order out of disorder. That's in the very nature of God. He is is a redeeming God. He is is a redeemer. In fact, we looked at this a little bit when we we looked at Genesis chapter 3 and surveyed that uh, several weeks ago, how you have, even in the midst of God's execution of judgment for the fall of Adam and Eve, you have this evidence of his redemptive character. He, he, He made clothing for them. He made a covering for them. They were naked and they had sewn fig leaves together and he made a covering for them out of animal skins. After he's right in the midst of him executing his justice in judging Adam and Eve and the serpent and the actual physical universe... There is also his redemption, his, his grace that's being displayed. But what you'll find as we look through the, the days of creation is you're going to see God bringing order out of disorder. So the, the book of Genesis, we've said this before too, it's not supposed to be a scientific textbook. Okay, It's not supposed to read like that. It wasn't originally written like that. But that's what people want to kind of bring into it as they read it. It is intended to bring to us the God who made everything, who is a God who made everything for a purpose and for a reason. And the reason that he made everything are his reasons. In other words, it's a God-centered focus. The creation account is part of God revealing himself. And as we go further into this, we're going to see how the creation narrative points to what God is doing in, in the context of his triune nature. So you really get into um, kind of a, a, an exploration of who God is in his triune nature. We see this uh, a little bit. We see a hint of this in verse 2. What does it say? What gives us a hint to the triune nature of God in verse 2? What do we see there? Spirit. The Spirit of God, right? Right. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. There's a, distinct, there's a distinction there that's made. Now, this gives you a, a, an image that even in the midst of what is literally waste and void, the, the earth at this point in particular time, and, and, and to go too far in this description becomes very speculative, even for me to be you know, saying too much about it. But the picture that you get here is the earth... That hasn't been formed into the shape that it's in now, and it it, it appears that it's it's submerged in water. So there's there's it's an, there's an engulfed in water kind of existence here. But you have all of the elements required for shaping it into a habitation for God's creation. But that but at the present time, it's waste. It's it's uninhabitable. It, it's not. It's not a, a, an environment that anything could, could live in except God and God alone. But you have this picture of the spirit of God hovering. It's a picture of God's sovereign care and control. It, it's, it's almost like you have this, this slight uh, contrast of imagery here where you've got this world in its current state, this universe, this this whole cosmos that God's created, it's formless, it's void, it's waste, it's uninhabitable by anything other than God Himself, and and there's and it's dark, utter and complete darkness, the kind of darkness that you and I can't even fathom. How many of you have been in a really, really, really dark place before? I'm not talking about where there's a little bit of light, but like where it's just really dark and you can't even see. You know what I'm saying? It's, there's like, there's, it's dark outside or, you know, it's dark in the house kind of darkness. And then there's like a whole nother level of darkness where there's, there's like the exclusion of any sources of light whatsoever. And if you ever find yourself in that kind of space where you start to realize that there's nothing affecting my vision to be able to give my, my eyes the ability to reflect some image off of something else, it is, I can't see Anything, you know, how you get into that kind of space, and, you, and you, you like you try to open your eyes as wide as you can to see something. It is just utterly and completely dark. Well, that's the environment that you have described here. There is no light at all whatsoever in this in this created primordial cosmos. But you still, even though it's waste and void and inhabitable, you still have the presence of the spirit of God. The spirit of truth. The spirit who we discover in the New Testament is also called the comforter. Right? Hovering over this waste. So you have this this picture again of who God is and his character. He is not uh, one who is um, unconcerned or uncaring about what he's doing. He's not um, arbitrary in what he's doing. And and the evidence of that is that the Spirit of God is hovering over the surface of the deep. There's, a, there's, a, there's an um, indication of, of care and, and oversight by the Spirit of God. And we know from the New Testament, as we read from John chapter 1, who else was present in creation? The pre-incarnate Son, right? Now you start getting into discussions about the nature of God as three in one and the Trinity and all that, again your mind is going to, you're going to exceed the ability of your mind to grasp that. We we can't fully grasp that. We have to, at some point, just say, I believe it, because that's how God has revealed himself in Scripture. But we have this indication, both in the the fact that the the Elohim name that's used is a plural form, um, is one indication. You have the presence of a distinguishing description of the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the deep. And, of course, we have New Testament, Um, description of the presence of the incarnate son, Colossians, who through him were all things created. And he sustains all things by the word of his power. And John chapter one, that we read before that by him were all things made and nothing was made that was made. So we have this, this representation of God who is three in one and the spirit of God hovering over the surface of, or the face of the waters, the surface of the deep. And what we're going to see next week as we get into creation day one, God's going to speak into existence and start to bring order out of this chaos. And we will begin to see as remember, this is the beginning of God's revelation of himself. We'll begin to see these characteristics of God as being one who, who brings peace and order out of chaos. This God who, Brings uh, tremendous creativity and diversity in his creation to be enjoyed. You'll see uh, evidences of God uh, demonstrating His power in profound ways. Again, the revelation of God to man is what we see here. Well, let's pray. We'll we'll step into the. the Next part of creation day one, we look at the creation of light and and we'll continue on from there. And it's probably going to start moving at a much faster pace because there's only so much you can say about the hows and the whys and the wherefores of of creation. Um, So it'll probably start moving at a faster pace as we get into the actual days. Let's pray.